Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1, verse 57. Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 66 is our passage today as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 66. And that passage is found on page 856, if you are using a church Bible. Page 856. And we read there, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came upon all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time of worship that we can gather uh, so freely and, and, and sing and, and hear your word. And we ask that you would use this time right now to, to speak to us today. That you would, by your spirit, help us to know you more. That you would bring us close to you. Your word is truth. Would you please sanctify us in the truth? And, and would you please show us how much you love us and how much you care for us? Would you show us how much better it is to live for your glory rather than to try and live for our own? We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have in our passage the account of the birth of John the Baptist, the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, the very forerunner of Jesus Christ himself. He's the one born in our text. And we are brought back to the hill country of Judea to a close-knit town into the home of his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, the last time we heard the name Zechariah, he had had his ability to speak taken away from him by God. God had told him one day through an angel, Gabriel, that despite their years of being able to conceive, and despite their inability to have a child, and despite their ages as senior citizens, God told Zechariah, you and Elizabeth are going to have a baby. And not just any baby, but this child is going to be the source of great joy. Many are going to rejoice at the fact that he is born. He's going to be great before the Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit, even from the womb. And he's going to be like Elijah, the prophet, in spirit and in power. His preaching is going to turn the hearts of people towards each other and turn the hearts of people towards their God. Your child is going to make ready for the Lord a people prepared for him. You're going to have a son, and you're going to name him John. That was God's message given to Zechariah from the angel Gabriel. But instead of believing that message and instead of faith in this word of God, Zechariah doubted. I'm old. My wife's old. How in the world is something like that going to happen? Zechariah had heard the word, but he didn't really think that the word could ever come to fruition. But God's word to Zechariah was not conditioned upon Zechariah's response, 
His fulfillment to his promise wasn't dependent on Zechariah's faithfulness to believe it. God's word is still going to come to pass in spite of Zechariah's doubt. His promise is certain. But to discipline Zechariah, behold, he would be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things would take place because Zechariah did not believe the word of God. He doubted. That is what happened the last time we heard the name Zechariah. He became a mute man. And here we are nine long, silent, soul-searching months later, and his wife is bursting at the seams. We read again in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. The first thing I want us to note is the great joy of Elizabeth the rejoicing of John the Baptist's mom. This is a scene of enormous celebration as her relatives and neighbors and community are brought together for this occasion of a miraculous birth. But the baby is not the true source of her joy. Luke doesn't write, and her neighbors and relatives heard about the baby boy, and they rejoiced. Or they heard about the smooth and safe delivery, and they rejoiced. No, Luke specifically writes, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy on her and they rejoiced with her. The Lord's mercy is the true reason for this joy. Now, is there joy in a baby being born? Absolutely. Every child born is occasion for great joy. But more than that and, and deeper than that, this child is not the source of joy, but the God behind the child is the source of joy and namely his mercy being displayed. Elizabeth's primary joy is the mercy of God upon her life. The cause of her rejoicing is a recognition that the Lord has shown mercy to me, that God would somehow be this kind to me that my God would do this for me, which is a much deeper emotion than a child being born. And brothers and sisters, our own joy in this life will be intimately related to how we view the actions of God towards us as being merciful. Now, this is important to know. This is a woman who, whose story in life didn't come out like she would have written herself. For the majority of her life, she didn't get what she wanted the most. Year after year, she could not conceive. Decade after decade, not only did all her friends have children, but her, their children had children, and they were grandparents. She was not. In this culture, childlessness meant shame and whispers that maybe Elizabeth has some kind of nasty sin up in her heart or some kind of secret skeleton deep in her closet. That's why God isn't giving her babies. Perhaps she deserved it. And Elizabeth had lived for years and years wondering and questioning the love of God in her life. Does he even really have a plan at all? And here she's given a child, and, and maybe the word that people might naturally think is not mercy, but, but vindication, victory. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had given her victory, or the Lord had given her validation and triumph, and they rejoiced with her. No, the joy comes from a recognition that this child is an act of God's mercy upon her. Mercy is God's kindness on someone who doesn't deserve it. It's his goodness on the one who, who hasn't earned it. By definition, mercy is not something that is due to us or something that we are owed. It rests entirely upon the character of God who is merciful and we receive because of something to do with who he is rather than who we are. And it's very easy to lose sight of God's mercy. It's very easy to live an entitled life. 
I deserve to be treated better, God. I think you owe me at least an explanation or some payback for all the suffering that I've endured in this life. Elizabeth, her attitude could have easily been six decades and no kids, God, and now I finally have one. Thank you. It's appreciated, but it's a little bit late. And I can't help but think that I'm old. I'm not going to see grandkids. Zechariah can't even throw a baseball anymore. Entitlement doesn't lead to joy, even when God gives us the best of gifts. Entitlement leads to bitterness because the entitled one is always thinking, I deserve more and I should get better than what I am receiving right now. This is an attitude that none of God's people should ever have, regardless of whatever situation you find yourselves in. What we deserve, brothers and sisters, what we are owed, what we have earned is death and death eternal because of our sinfulness against a holy God. We never, ever want what we are owed of God, but we have a God of great mercy. And every day that we live is a day that is better than what it is we deserve. And every gift that we have is a gift of God's great mercy. You know, studying this text and looking, sitting at the dinner table, looking at my kids this week, staring at their little faces. This text reminds me, I don't deserve to have a family. They're a gift of God's mercy, even when none of them want to listen to me. Your body, it's a gift of God's mercy. If it works, it's mercy. If it doesn't work, it's still mercy. Your job is, is mercy. Your marriage is mercy, even when it hits the rocks. Your church, imperfect, drama-filled, still mercy that we get to have a family to worship with. Your relationships, your friendships, they are gifts of God's mercy. If we could only look past the gifts a little bit to the one who so lovingly gives them to us and behold him, our joy will skyrocket. That God somehow gives to us so freely even when he doesn't owe us anything. We're down here and yet he lifts us up to him. And a confession of real joy is James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That's how he is. We change and fluctuate all the time. He never changes. You see their redirection from the gift to the giver of the gift? I wonder if you, you view everything that you have and have been given as a gift of God's mercy. If any of us were to sit down and just count just how good God has been to us, the undeserving, and just write it down on a sheet of paper, list it all out, you're going to run out of paper. And it's going to humble us tremendously. And then all of a sudden, it becomes very difficult to complain about anything. It will give us a confidence in him and deliver us a deeper joy that is beyond the gift as we look toward the gracious giver of all gifts. Whether we have 10 children before 40 or just one near 70 or none at all, we know that we have a father of lights who never changes but operates on this great principle of mercy. Most complaining people are entitled people. Most of the time when I'm grumbling or whining, I've lost sight of my God. What's the time I'm murmuring about how I should be treated or how we should be recognized or how we should be coddled, and we're not getting that. Most complaining people are, are, are entitled people. And most entitled people are not happy people. They are the ones filled uh, with not joy but something else. And I, I, may, I bet it may be for you that, that your lack of joy in the Christian life, if you have that, it has a lot to do with how entitled you feel that God owes you something that he hasn't given to you. And it blinds you to the 
multitude of gifts that he already has. And it covers your eyes to his character. It's this kind of privileged uh, entitlement in the Christian walk which robs us of real joy and lasting happiness. So you look at a text of someone rejoicing, the, the obvious mirror reflection is, is the question, are you happy? Are you a person of, of great joy? Or are you not? We just have to think about our last week. Has, has joy reflected uh, who I am and what I'm realizing about who God is? Sometimes we just have to look up. Sometimes we have to lift our chins and look towards our creator God whose dealings with us are merciful more than they are anything else. And when you're walking hand in hand with him in that relationship, all of his gifts, big or small, will not go by unnoticed or unappreciated, but will be constant fuel for true happiness and deep joy in him. Elizabeth's joy here is what I want us to recognize. It's not just this moment in time. This is a reflection of her entire relationship with God. She knows God's been holding her the entire time, even through her suffering, and even now in the culmination of this great gift. And it is especially this kind of joy in God that is contagious. The whole community recognizes it, that when they're all together, they laud and see the character of their God. This is the joy we need, brothers and sisters. This is the joy we need. And so I want to encourage you from Elizabeth and even from last weekend's Mary's Magnificat that it's the humble, the lowly, the, the hungry God lifts up even to himself. But it's the proud, the mighty, the exalted, the, the high-nosed and entitled. They never really do get to enjoy the mercy of God. They never really do get to celebrate him. And so we continue in verse 59. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise a child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. The second thing I want you to note from this text is the God-nurtured faith of Zechariah. God had really used the last nine months to shape him and make him into a godlier person. Zechariah is a different man than the one who was filled with doubt earlier this year. Now, these verses before us show to us some drama and some conflict surrounding naming the baby. Close friends and family, they want the child to be named after Zechariah. Well, we don't have many children named after their dads in the Bible. I think it's easy to see why they want this. They have one kid. They're old. They have no one to carry on the family name, line for Zechariah and Elizabeth. And I don't think their family and friends are thinking there's another baby in the pipeline. But a child, and especially a son in this culture, would walk in the footsteps of his father. Peter was a fisherman like his dad. James and John, fishermen like their dad. Zechariah Jr. could be a priest like his dad and follow his dad and carry on his dad's legacy and continue the family line. I mean, they have nobody else. Their futures are wrapped up into this little baby. And so why not a family name? And especially in this unique case, his own father's name, any other name would be inappropriate. And these well-meaning friends and family are so forward with this desire that they actually try and name the baby for them. Elizabeth has to say, no, don't do that. He shall be called John. 
But none of your family is called John. That kind of name doesn't extend your legacy and your line and your heritage, which is why they turn so abruptly to Zechariah. He's going to agree with us. And they make all these crazy signs to grab his attention. Some commentators think not only was he unable to speak, he was maybe unable to hear too. Who knows? But Zechariah is exactly on the same page as a spirit-filled wife. And he writes ever so clearly on that writing tablet, his name is John. The original word order, John is the name of him. There's emphasis on the name John. Not his name will be John, but his name is John. It's already been determined from a long time ago. And at that very moment, Zechariah gets his voice back, and the very first thing that comes out of his mouth is worship. He blesses, he praises, he extols the Lord. He has come to believe the word of God. He's actually come to believe it quite firmly. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on Luke, he writes this, we see in the conduct of Zechariah in this passage a striking example of the benefit of affliction. He shows that his nine months' dumbness had not been inflicted on him in vain. He is no longer faithless but believing. He now believes every word that Gabriel had spoken to him and every word of his message shall be obeyed. We need not doubt that the past nine months had been a most profitable time to the soul of Zechariah. He had learned probably more about his own heart and about God than he ever knew before. His conduct shows it. The sorrow that humbles us and drives us nearer to God is a blessing and a downright gain. When you are afflicted, when suffering has come your way, turn to God and not away from them. And I don't know what it is that many of you are going through in this life. I know some of it when I get to hear from you directly or hear from the people around you that love you. But God is doing something in your adversity. God has a plan for your affliction that you might come back to him, that you would run towards him. One commentator, he says, our suffering will either make us bitter or make us better. It's one or the other. There's no in between. Our suffering will either make us bitter or it will make us better. For Zechariah, it has made him into a better man, and God's own mercy is seen in his life as well, that doubting Zach after nine months of being unable to speak and express himself or talk about his planes or afflictions or even his thoughts, nine months of seeing his wife's body changing and putting his hand on that belly and feeling that baby kick, realizing God's word is absolutely true. He never lies. What he speaks will come to pass, even when it seems impossible. Feel that baby kick. Nine months, Zechariah's soul is in this crockpot of sorts, brewing worship, that when his mouth is finally able to be opened, the first thing he wants to do is praise the Lord. We must not despise the afflictions that God brings our way. They're brewing something in us. Charles Spurgeon, probably the most famous Baptist preacher ever, people don't know he suffered from severe physical pain. He had gout before there was medicine for gout. His wife was sick. Oftentimes, he struggled with depression. He says this, I am afraid that all the grace that I have got of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I've received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. It is the best book in a minister's library. That's true. For those of us who've been Christian for any length of time, we know it's oftentimes in the pain that we have our best times with God, strangely enough. 
It's oftentimes when things are so comfortable and so easy breezy that we completely forget about them. Now, I'm not saying that we should be masochists and enjoy the pain because God's a stern dad who wants me to learn everything the hard way. Yes, sir, salute. But there's a, there's a purity here that I don't think would be possible without a refining fire. And put yourself in Zechariah's shoes. I got one kid. It's a miracle. His name has to be John. What about Zechariah, first name, John, middle name? Best of both worlds. Or you know what? I could be humble. John, first name, Zechariah, middle name. Jay-Z, God first, then me. He didn't do that. There's a, there's a purity of faith here. And with it, there's a stark realization that my line, my lineage, my legacy, it ends with me. This is it. And you know what? Praise the Lord. He must increase, and I must decrease. There's a, there's a purity there. And it isn't because God wants to teach us lessons the hard way all the time. But it's often that the purest gold has to be refined in a little bit of heat. And the end product is so much more beautiful than what went into the fire. You know, Matthew, uh, Mark, John, none of them really talk about Zechariah and Elizabeth on this naming drama. But I'm so glad that Luke includes this in his account. And, and I think there's an implicit challenge for us as parents as well, for us to be single-minded in our parenting. I was reading a link on chalice.com this weekend. That's a good website if you want to read daily posts on the Christian faith, chalice, C-H-A-L-L-I-E-S.com. But he links a study conducted by a man named Christian Smith who spent 20 years studying the religious and spiritual lives of young people turning into adults. He took all this data, people from the age of children, until they became their own people. And he found that far and away, the greatest influence on a child's religious outcome is his or her parents, far and away. He says the empirical evidence is clear. In almost every case, no other institution or program comes close to shaping youth religiously as their parents do. Not religious congregants, youth groups, faith-based schools, missions and service trips, summer camps, Sunday school, youth ministers, or anything else. Parents can't pass the baton to them. The empirical evidence is clear. The greatest influence on a child's religious outcome is his or her parents. Now, this child knowledge may trouble some of us, but it can also empower us. And he makes a simple argument that parents just need to be themselves meaning you actually believe God, that we actually take him at his word because kids are not fooled by performances. They see reality. And when that reality is authentic and life-giving, they are drawn to it. It's not a compartmentalized religion where we're Christian on Sunday and Monday through Saturday is something else. It's not bringing up this awkward topic. It's a part of who we are and what we care about Again, this is a matter of parents and families being authentically who and what they are and not suddenly deciding to sermonize. Now, this is not just true about parents. This is true of all believers that our greatest impact upon the people around us is going to be rooted in really believing what we believe. And I think the reason why perhaps Luke might spend so much time on Zechariah and Elizabeth and God's own mercy on them in shaping them and keeping them close to him is to see that John the Baptist's humility in the he greater than I in the Christ must increase and I must decrease is because we already see the roots of that in his parents right up to his birth. John's story, his faith, 
actually really begins earlier than even his own birth, that the forerunner of the Messiah was raised in a home on the quiet hillside of Judea by a mother and father who knew intimately the work of God in their own lives and were actually real believers. And I think that that is a better legacy than any kind of Zechariah Jr., don't you think? Parents, we have a high call, and I want to encourage you, encourage all of us uh, to take that mantle and do it with joy. And so the second thing I want you to notice, in addition to Elizabeth's joy in God's mercy, is that God had really nurtured and purified and strengthened the faith of Zechariah through his affliction. And the end result was a single-minded worship that would have not been accomplished had not the last nine months been silent. Verse 65, we continue. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with them. That last line is our last point. For the hand of the Lord was with them. This is about the hand of God more than it is about Zechariah or Elizabeth or the birth of this child. This is about the hand of God working itself throughout history. This passage is not necessarily about this person or that person. It is about the Lord and what he is doing and how he planned to do it. Let me read to you John MacArthur on this text. He says, this story is really a story about God. God is the main player in this drama. God is the main actor. It is the hand of the Lord that Luke wants us to see here. And this is not just true of this story. It is true of everything in Scripture. Psalm 19.7 calls the Bible the testimony of the Lord. First and foremost, the Bible is a revelation of God. It is his own word about himself. His nature, his character, his works, his purpose, his will, he is being revealed. This is a book about him. What Luke is showing to us in the mercy of God bestowed on the barren one in giving her a child, what Luke is showing to us in the long-suffering and patience of God, even with a doubting priest who should know better, as God carefully and surgically uses affliction to heal him, what Luke is showing to us, even in John's birth and the meaning of his name, God's grace, that the sum of his life is to point us to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. What Luke is showing to us, what he's revealing to us, is the very heart and character of our God, that he's merciful to the barren, that he wants to bestow gifts on the incapable, that he's patient even with the one who should know better, long-suffering, even using affliction and trials and his providence to make us into better people. What Luke is showing to us is this God who walks with us and near us, even carrying us so that we might ultimately come to see him for who he really is. And it's in this passage's closing that we see this fear, this awe, this response of reverence because the hand of God is being made so utterly obvious in the sight of all the people that that is all that they can talk about and that's what they treasure up in their hearts and there's this anticipation for what God is going to do next. That needs to be all of our hearts, brothers and sisters. We need to ask God every day, show me your hand so that I can know you more and more. John the Baptist is born on this day so that with God's own hand upon him, he might point us ultimately to Jesus Christ. This is God's work. It is a product of his labors. Now, I get to preach the gospel to you on most weekends out of the year, 
But today we get to hear a few testimonies from a couple of prospective members, and, and I will let them tell you the gospel with their own lives as the illustration of how God's own hand was on them. And, and before we watch the video, would you please join me in prayer as we close this time? Father, we thank you for your character. We thank you that you are a God of great mercy, that you are a God of great patience, that you are a God who is intimately aware and caring for your creation. We thank you, God, that when you speak, your word always comes to pass, even when it seems impossible. We thank you that you're a God who never changes. There's no variation. You are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, and you love to give gifts to your children. We thank you, God, that you've given us the ultimate gift of Jesus Christ, and I pray for our church and for everyone here that you would make us and shape us and help us to realize how much better it is to live wholly unto you, how much more joyful it is to lose our life to gain it. God, would you be glorified in us? We ask these in Jesus' name. We pray, amen.